We're back. News of our demise has been greatly exaggerated. Just a short quarantine to prevent exposure to the Kung Flu virus. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Poker Zoo. Who is this? Thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. This week, Swadio interviews another Canadian. Believe it or not, starting to disbelieve the rumor that Canadians hate Americans because they keep coming on the program. But uh, Chris is about half Canadian anyway up there in the Pacific Northwest. You can find the Poker Zoo at persuadio.nl. This podcast, along with each of the other episodes, are listed there. And um, Google hates our podcast, but they love the name Poker Zoo because they'll bring it up uh, the top of the search engine. We would love your feedback. So leave a comment under any of the uh, episodes there or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast aggregators. You can also email persuadio at gmail.com or thepokerzoo at gmail.com, especially if you have an audio file. There'll be a question you have, comments about the show. We'd love to create something a bit more interactive, if possible. Some say his culinary palate is unmatched in the modern age. And in fact, Harlan David Sanders, a.k.a. The Colonel, credits him with his secret 11th herb and spice that made his chicken a household name. We, however, just call him Persuadio. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. This is Chris, a.k.a. Persuadio. I've been off for a few weeks, but it hasn't been unproductive. And I'm very pleased to bring on uh, to the program Car Young Tom. He is a player from Montreal, Canada, uh, certainly one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit about that. I mean, I know nothing about the poker there. Um <laughs> But I have spoken, as you know, to, to Francois, who's a little, I think, outside the city. Anyway, I'm rambling on. How are you, Carr? Chris, I am. Uh, you're excited to, to have me on your show. I'm excited to be on your show just because of, again, the, the variety of people you've had on. Um, I, I've listened to a few episodes and because, you know, a lot of the players and personalities may have conflicting strategies and thoughts. And it just seems like I compliment you for seeing the good uh what you can take away from everyone if even if you might disagree with them on something well i thank you for that poker is a big big game and uh you know i have my little i have my little niche of knowledge but uh, on the show today and i know you're going to also talk about something that's very interesting to my students and that's coaching for profits i don't want to spill the beans but you're you're one of those guys right yeah, yeah, I definitely am. I'm also part, like Francois, part of uh, Adam Jones's uh, Coaching for Profits program that we'll talk about later. Perfect. So let's start from the beginning. Um, who are you? You know, what what's your age? What what do you do for a living? You know, tell us about how you got into poker. So right now, I'm I'm 34, and I'm working as the digital content manager for FaceToFaceGames.com, uh, the number one store when it comes to magic the gathering cards which is uh you'll you'll be you hear rumblings of of players that transitioned from that strategy game to poker and you'll be surprised to know that that game has actually uh since its creation in i think 1993 has only grown and today before before this call uh, hasbro announced uh their i guess their earnings or or whatever that the game has grown once again from 
from what they expected. And so surprising, but th- this ties into to my beginning where I was like a lot of poker players got into chess and, but I got into it pretty deep where I was competing uh, at a high level and rated as one of the top 25 players for, for my age uh, in, in the country up to, up to around college, uh, which doesn't translate to necessarily a high ELO rating because we're talking about my, my age group, but there was some promise there. And I was going to these tournaments with, with a bunch of my friends that I've made from elementary school. But as I kept going higher, higher in level, uh, those friends started to, to dwindle in terms of um, how many were coming with me to the tournaments because it became too much work to them. It, it didn't become fun anymore to rise up the ranks. So what then happened is I transitioned to Magic because Magic, there were people that didn't play chess, but just played Magic casually. And because it's a game that contains luck, they were they were down to, to show up at the local game shop on a weekly basis or every Friday night. Uh, there's something that every store holds called Friday Night Magic. And after school, every Friday, I would go and there would be more than a dozen people there. So I had that sense of community that I was missing from chess. So transition to that uh, were... I sort of made my a name for myself in the Canadian community, um, and around that time, also the Chris Moneymaker thing, you know, boom happened, and hosting home games with with all these friends of mine. And what I recognized was that the strategy in poker reminded me of chess. There were books on the game, and I got that from one of my friends giving me uh, his first. Uh, book, which is Phil Gordon's little green book that had like easy digestible uh, strategies on every page. And and I read that and moved on and tried to get better at the game. But I've been in and out of the game. Uh, I was different coaching sites and and until like very recently over the last few months, uh, applying myself and getting into a coaching for profits program. But between now and and looking back at like when we talked, I was always like just casually playing one two uh, live and playing like five cent ten cent online, but not, never taking it like super seriously. So the question then is why now? Why are you applying yourself now? Why are you getting involved with uh, Adam Jones? What's what's the deal? So when when I talk to you, I've I've asked you. Before when we were both, uh, when RCP was re- releasing regular content versus uh, the current monthly model, um, just picking your brain on, on which coaches you thought were good. And and I came away thinking Adam Jones's videos just like left a good impression on me in terms of they gave you actionable advice that I could directly apply instead of things like, well, if he folds too much, you should be more aggressive. Like these vague statements are really hard to <laughs> apply in game and is something that happens a lot during plain, plain explains or a live plain explained webinar session where someone asks like, okay, but what if he does this? Well, if he does this, I will see better. more. Well, obviously you will do that more. So I, I always remember him having some of the best classroom style videos but I think for the for the longest time I was just coasting. I was just coasting on. I posted. I even looked back for this call, this old RCP forum post I made about how I was grinding two NL to rebuild my role, and I had this crazy <laughs> crazy win rate for for a decent sample to a crazy win rate. But I was just following. I think the most basic strategy, like that I read from Harrington on Hold'em, which is like 
okay, small pot, small hands, big pot, big hands. It just seemed like people were willing to ship uh, their money in with with the worst hands all the time. And so for the longest period of time, why I didn't take the next jump, because I just felt like that's really all I had. If that's all I had, how am I outplaying my opponents? If that's just really the basis of my strategy. And so only recently... Well, I'm I'm just I'm just curious. Um, you're you've gotten really serious now. If you're playing under the, you know, under the auspices of of the coaching program, you've loved games your whole life. Why why now? Why poker? Why why aren't you uh, in Magic still? Oh, that that is a real good question. Um, I just think Magic is a game that for the longest time, people said, <laughs> even even like Dave Williams and Eric Froelich prominent magic players who are also known in in the poker world they would say something like they play magic for fun and poker for money and things like that and uh, basically the the way they've made they structured competitive magic it, it becomes not uh from a money investment standpoint not really worth your your time so mm-hmm. i think as i've gone older um it's kind of weird it, the the shift of the money becomes a little bit more important. I got married uh, a year ago, and that that shift happened. But it is interesting. The shift happens because you would imagine that I would have way more free time to grind back in the day. Like be that because I I now have a full time job. I'm not grinding as much as I could be if I didn't have one. So that's that's the interesting shift where I have less free time, but I feel the time that I do have is more important, and I'd rather put my focus on something that I think could potentially uh, is just as fun to me and can make more money. Okay. So you're, you're going to, you're planning on moving up is what you're saying. Right. Right. So in in that long period of playing time, I think I was in 10 and L and I was always, I never took shots because I guess I was too scared. I was fine with being comfortable. I've probably, I haven't made that much money over my poker playing career, but I was just, happy to be profiting in the lower ranks and and right now yeah i am taking it that seriously where you know it's time to look at it seriously if you're just going to play 10 and l what's the point so like entering this program is like the first time i'm regularly at the 25 nl tables and now i'm also becoming a regular at the 50 nl tables so that's something that i've never played before and which is interesting because i'm playing 50 nl when the game is way tougher than it was back when I was just grinding the micro, the super micros. I'm not someone who knows anything about magic. I'm one of those people who hear all these bright guys played magic and went on to do well in poker. Could you tell us for, you know, the insulated, ignorant <laughs> parts of the audience, including myself, what the hell is magic? <laughs> I, I, a lot of people short, do these shortcuts descriptions I'm, I'm not sure if that's really helpful for someone like you to say like oh it's a cross between poker and chess uh but i i guess that's like the, the quick way but if, if i try to explain it really quickly is you both have 60 cards you bring to the table um and uh generally and then you both have 20 life and then you have cards that bring that person your goal in general, there's a lot of different avenues of victory, but in general, you're trying to bring your opponent down from 20 life to zero. So you'll have you you have cards 
you'll start with seven cards and you draw one each turn and some cards might say okay you cast this you deal three damage to your opponent so they go from 20 to 17 and then but then there are creatures on the table that can deal damage and then the strategy becomes well do you use that spell to to deal damage to the opponent to bring him down to 2017 or you use that spell to kill the creature that is dealing damage to you so you're um, preventing them from bringing you closer to zero so there's there's that strategy element and there's that card like people love to hold cards in their hands and that luck component where you're drawing a card each turn that may change the tide it's very similar to you know the river card or, or even the turn card any card from from poker that swings the equities in a huge way and the there's just different aspects of the game that appeal to a lot of different players some people love to collect and i think for for the magic for the poker competitive poker player i think why they love it or why i love it let's say is like you're going one-on-one and it's my strategy against your strategy i guess it's like heads up poker but and, and you design the deck that you bring to the table so there's that attachment to the deck whereas in poker maybe you have your favorite hand like 10 deuce like Dole Brunson but here you're actually designing the 60 cards you're choosing the 60 cards you bring to the table so I think that's the the appeal people love and it's a game that I'm sure if poker players had time for uh that they would they would give it a try but but it is a huge investment of time but you have to know every couple of months new cards come out you have to know what they do and uh if you don't you know you're you're starting from way behind. So, you know, chess is such a perfect game. Poker is a very perfect game. Is this game, I mean, who created it? And is, in, in your opinion, you know, is it one of these just extremely strong, well-designed games that's always going to be attractive to people who love games? Yeah, it's, it's designed by Richard Garfield. And I think, I believe, I'd have to look it up, that he has a very strong mathematical background. And he has he's gone on to design other successful board games, um, and I think what what's interesting is that chess and and poker, the rules of the game stay the same, and magic. It's hard for me to forecast is because every couple of of months they will release new cards, and not only new cards, but introduce uh, new mechanics as they would call it. So. So a card, cards used to be just one face, but then there would be cards that are flip cards where it's one creature on one side and some scenario happens and you flip the card on the other side and it becomes a totally different creature. And that was introduced several years ago. And that's just one example of different things that they're adding to the game. And it does become a question of like when... Does it come to a point where they, they'll run out of ideas with what they could do with, with the 60 cards and how they function for, versus each other? What like there's different rules that they could do, there's different things that they could bend the, the physical properties of the card to do something. So that's the interesting part. But I think um the design of the game, yes, it seems like it's strong enough. Uh, to keep people for so long, and I I just don't see it going away because other card games have come, and they've disappeared, and Magic has stayed at number one since I can remember. In 2010, 10 years ago, I started something called 
uh, manadeprived.com, which is a Magic the Gathering strategy site slash community site that featured the best players in Canada. And at the time, well, I graduated in software engineering. And so I was working for, for Nokia, for those of, those of you who still know what that was, and uh, also working on the strategy community site on the side. And then at some point, face-to-facegames.com was an up-and-coming store. They were not as big as they are today. And we sort of rose up together, became partners in sort of branding each other or promoting each other at different events. And it just made sense at some point, whereas my strategy site was not making money, I was just editing writing content and, and contributing for free on my own time and, and didn't have I didn't have a business model and whereas they wanted someone like me to to be their content guy to be uh, their social media guy to be someone to help them promote their store even more so it just made sense for them to eventually buy my site and for me to have a job at, at their store well, that's a really great thing to get your passion involved with your income like that <laughs> uh, but why games i mean listen to yourself here you're playing chess magic now poker uh you're a guy who loves games how did that happen i i have no idea i, I actually don't know i was competitive since um remembering in elementary school school when learning chess and i guess i just was really good at it and it just encouraged me to go further i, I guess that's the only um, thing I remember, I mean, I could maybe link it to me possibly being bullied at the time and needing something uh, to feel good about myself uh, that I was doing well in. Mm. Um, yeah, like something that that even despite bullies that kept my my emotions high and, and super positive was I was always uh, proud of my intelligence because I was crushing all the math stuff. So, I mean, that always gave my, kept my self-esteem up. And I do wonder, like you're asking me now, I just wonder if that had a part in me just staying in something I excelled in. Like I, I stumbled in something I excelled in. I'm like, it makes me feel good. So let's keep doing that. And then I find other people love to play this game as well. With that community aspect, I think that made it, that pushed it to a point where I'm like, man, I love, games and 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 what people do and and how i feel while i'm playing in them yeah and so you're taking them very seriously and this seems to spill over into some of your interests you follow the conversations of you know the disputes on gto between you know dominic nietzsche and matt berkey (laughs) all that stuff um you know you know what what are your thoughts on the state of the game for someone who's played a multiplicity of very challenging um games I think that that's what brings my appeal and why that that also answers go, goes back to a previous question you had why now um, because now I have a general sense actually of how I would like to attack the game and we'll go into and it's the main reason why I joined Adam Jones's uh, coaching for profits program um, but so with the, with the GTO thing it's also like uh, our friend Alvin Lau from from Overnight Monster he also has very strong opinions that he does in his videos about the subject. And that's why I find it so interesting that even though we are at a point where people think rightfully think that games are tougher 
and that there are more tools at everyone's disposal, it just seems like not only just the Twitterverse, just being in some Discord communities, people just have completely different ideas. And that appeals to me because I don't think everyone could be right. I mean, they might be right to a certain point, but I, I think a lot of them are missing the point. And if these are the people that are considered or maybe regulars at the stakes I play them, that it gives me some positive feedback that there might still be an edge. So how do I feel? I feel the same as, um, I guess in those discussions, like, like Matt Berkey, I just don't think, um, a lot of people stress that you need a GTO baseline and, I was just tweeting at you. I was just like, I don't think that is necessarily true if you know someone has a huge exploit uh, because let's say they they fold to a continuation bets too much, like 80%, then then you know you have an, an auto profit spot. But that also means you sort of vaguely know in the back of your mind where, where that baseline full frequency should be. Like if you think 80 is too much, that means you probably think it should be closer to 50 and 40, right? Somehow, like without knowing the exact number. And um, so my thoughts are like, you don't need to be, to know the exact baseline to be like profitable at the game. You will find, uh, you'll be able to find a lot of um, exploit spots. And that's that's where I stand versus the GTO uh, super solver focused um, approach that, that some of the players have today where, if you ask a question on Discord, they just spit out the solver answer, and and that's how you should be playing. And I think that cannot be true, just because we can have huge databases of hands that can show that on average, there's there's like clear spots where people are either overfolding or taking a certain action that you can totally abuse. And I think people are going to be missing. A lot of EV go, trying to play GTO, and on top of that, what I found interesting is that how people approach playing GTO. So I think Alvin's one of them, and um, someone else that escapes me. Oh, Nick Howard, basically taking certain spots, especially the flop, and trying to not play GTO but play play GTO simplified, which is seeing how you instead of memorizing the chart, be able to just maybe per, perhaps reduce it all to one bet size or see bet your entire range so that your flop decision is pretty automatic and um so different approaches not within gto itself and all these branches and the mixture of exploitative and gto that's what really uh appeals me to the game right now chris fair enough and i don't mean to lead you down a blind alley <laughs> um what I what I was actually getting at is that let's let's move to to what you're doing because you're excited about that. Um, you're working with the Coaching for Profits program under Adam Jones, and you're having to deal in real time with these situations. And um, you know what's what is the guidance in general? You can speak specifically if you want, but what is where does the strategy come from? Are are you out there being an exploitative player or are you know, well, just tell me, tell me what you're doing under his guidance. Under his guidance, he provides a, a very strong fra- framework baseline strategy for basically a lot of these frequently 
frequent spots that you find yourself in and which is something you'll I mean a lot of a lot of different places had that I mean I upswing was popular a few years ago for coming up with their framework where they would divide uh, their hands into four groupings uh, nuts draws uh, showdown value and then like complete trash and here I think Adam based on on strength of your hand based on board texture uh, gives a a solid framework to to just a default strategy to play with and then uh, on top of that i think to add on to that there are different spots where lines of play uh that he could recommends based on population analysis he's done over the years so things like whether uh a bet check bet line, you know, is is going to be underfolded or overfolded by the population, or um, really diving into. He's really mastered hand to note uh, in terms of also knowing using it as a way to judge how often one can bluff catch. But these are baseline. What I love about this program is that. These are just baseline approaches, but then you can look at your database and things can shift. Uh, we all know that philosophies, coaching philosophies can shift. And you can look at your database to see uh, when people take a certain line and it goes to showdown, what kind of hand strength, what percentage of the time they have uh, top pair plus or they they have trash 30% of the time that you know based on uh, the amount that they bet, you know, are you good or not to, to call. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to say that, say all of this without really, um, spitting too many confusing details. I don't know if I did a good job of that. Well, I think what you're describing is somewhat akin to, um, a market-based strategy. It's, it's not really the implementation of the pure solver results. Is that fair? It's fair, but, but I do think probably the pre-flop ranges and stuff like that are are done so that it's not absurdly uh, exploitative because I've seen people recommend, let's say, a pre-flop race as a five because of a certain exploit that they want to do. But there is some strong basis um, that I think, I think a solver would be approved. Like it wouldn't think that the strategy is too crazy. So since your goal is to move up and, and make this a money-making endeavor, and I'm, I'm sure your your new wife agrees that this better be profitable, um, how, how do you feel about the strategies you're learning? Are you, do you feel like you're improving at poker? Are you executing better? Um, is there a cost mentally to playing under a coaching for profits program? Okay, I'm going to try. Remind me if I miss a question. So I'm going to tackle... Uh, the part I do feel like I'm improving significantly because okay. I have a I feel like I know what I'm doing more than ever before. Whereas, again, before I was just taking that approach of small pots, small, small hand makes small pots, big pot, big hands. And I'm like, how do I have an edge if I'm just thinking that and everyone, every reg probably approached that game the same way. But here I can tell, you know, the population is doing this. OK, and let's just play 30K, 60K hands and see 
um, how profitable my specific bet on this specific street is. Does that reflect what I think should happen based on my analysis and my lessons? And they do. So it's like, there's just this light bulb moments that happen uh, on a consistent basis uh, for me. Yeah. I, I was also part of the upswing lab uh, at one point. And I think mm-hmm. like at that point when you're splitting your hands in, in those four groupings, sometimes you're not, you're, that approach, you might not really be thinking about the villain's range and on different boards as much as the approach I'm taking now where we do uh, adjust based on, you know, is it a a board with a lot of middle cards? Then you know it hits usually the preflop caller and how, how do we make adjustments to that strategy? And that's something that I used to never do before. Uh, once again, also different spots, let's say continuation betting. I have a better idea than ever before uh, how often, what type of boards people are seabed, uh, are folding to the seabed and not just from like a book that says, yeah, you should just seabed on dry textures, but something more, I guess, um, specific. Like, let's, is it an ace high dry texture? Is it a king high dry? Is it two broadways? That stuff, whereas I think books that we've, all read in the past were a little bit more general uh, when it comes to that uh, type type of strategy where it's like, okay, you see bet when it's like a seven, three rainbow, obviously bet, but then um, there are different aspects and different parts of the flop that might change that equation. All very fair. Um, The thing about GTO that's sort of misunderstood a little bit is that you're always playing against a range. You're always adjusting to that range it's not a static fixed strategy in other words when frequencies change the maximum exploit changes which is essentially what the solver is doing and what theory would tell you to say like how free are you under the system to do what you think is right pretty pretty free okay um one of the things i see in online play is and it came up in the interview with Francois, which will now connect to you, is that there's a lot of very standardish, almost button clicking sizings. Is Adam providing you rather detailed sizing information? Um, are things set in stone? What what are the the fine points that help you uh, beat the games in terms of sizings? So it's not, I've, I've seen what you're talking about. And I've seen, I think, old references to specifically like Nick Howard, who who recommends at one point, I don't know if it's true now, but at one point it was like obvious that he was recommending that you see bet your entire range, one third pot. And at this early stage, um, yeah, Adam hasn't been too finicky about my, my specific sizings or anything. Uh, more, I think, Perhaps he he believes the sizing is is better, but he wants to attack uh, the low hanging fruits, which is whether I'm actually betting the right hands or not. Mm. And I I feel pretty free. So when I'm looking at let's say delayed c betting in position, I'll look at the population database I have or or the current um, people that I'm playing against recently. Let's say uh, the last couple of months to see you know what people are folding the most 
on a, to a given sizing and I'll find maybe like the late C bedding. I'm doing, I'm doing a lot better with 80% pot, uh, than 40%. But the caveat to that, that I didn't realize until recently is that by sizing up, sure they fold, fold more now, but that might mean that the river barrel is going to work less good, uh, because they have a stronger range now on the river. And so does that, hurt that other side of my strategy where people used to fold a lot to just the late seabed river barrel, but now maybe they don't as much because I've, I've barreled so hard on the turn and I'd have to look out and calculate myself like the EV between those two bed sizes to, to really gauge like what I'm supposed to be doing. But like here, I'm doing a lot of my personal fine tuning. So there's nothing from, from Adam that's telling me, no, you should just like do 40% pot or, or something. This is just stuff that I'm, I'm basically analyzing and fine tuning on my own. Right. I think Francois was playing two to four tables. I'm not going to know. How, how, what are you managing to do? I'm managing to do, I, <laughs> maybe it's silly, but I, I'm managing to do four zoom and four regular tables, but the primary focus I want to stress is not to uh, learn the nuances of, of everything. I think I'm still very new to um, Adam's teach. Like I'm not new to his teachings because I've I've been in uh, Redshift Poker for a while, but I'm new to this coaching program. I've jo- I joined in just last October, and really truly began as part of the program in I believe November or or December. And I wanted to grind a lot of hands, take breaks, and look at the pre-flop ranges and just just to make sure I'm not off base in, in certain spots. And I think that's what's been able to advance my game more. So I'd look at like blind versus blind, play a bunch of hands, take a break, review like what I've done and, and if it makes sense according to our strategy and go on. So I really wanted to brute force this number of hands, whereas people would probably recommend to take my time. But like I, I actually really like this like brute force repetition approach for this specific type of thing that I'm learning. Fair enough. I can't imagine doing eight tables. So <laughs> hats off. I mean, I, I really can't. I think I would lose my mind. You've talked a lot about the positive aspects of it. Are there any negative aspects? I mean, not I'm not trying to take shots at anyone, but right. what are the downsides of being involved in this group, if there are any? Um, mate, I, I think... I don't know. I think I haven't felt that way because there's just there might be doubt at some point with a lot of people who are struggling, like whether Adam actually knows what he's doing, if he's currently playing uh, the higher stakes to be able to teach that. There's always that uh, among probably different people in the program. And, And I mean, in general, we see that in like Discord groups where, you know, Kanu 7 releases a course and I'm in this uh, Discord chat where everyone craps on on him and and craps on uh, you know our my friend I don't know if it's our oh I can say our friend but my friend uh, split suit or Christian Soto or like there's a lot of fear of because it's not it's not like a a chess book that is you can verify with a chess engine a hundred percent that this is likely the best move people still don't have an idea. And that's why a lot of these uh, micro stakes and low stake players go to the solvers because they feel they like that. They feel like they're getting a 
machine given answer. But I think there's just a lot of benefits within the program, such as motivating you to play a certain amount of volume per month, et cetera. But I, I think the only downside, again, is like psychologically, whether it's worth it or not. And it, it, the huge downside is if the coach actually doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, I'm blindly trusting Adam. That's a huge downside. And the only other one is maybe like I didn't do like no one really does the serious EV calculation of the staking deal. Like, I don't know if I'm giving away too much EV by entering this deal, by learning uh, all this stuff from him. But but maybe it's like really good for him from a, a time aspect. But I also, I'm in this tough spot where it's like, okay, maybe it's not the max EV, but I actually really want to learn from him. And, and it's like, I, I'm, I have to make this decision. So I think basically that's it. Like whether it's worth it, that, that might creep in your mind is, is the only negative aspect so far that I've seen. Other than that, I mean, I think it's done nothing, nothing but positive. I, I put over 30 K hands in the past uh, two months each month. And that's like the base minimum. And he mentioned in, in our last coaching session that he'd like it. Ideally he recommends 60 K and, and just him saying that like motivates me to, to hit 60 K. If that makes sense. I think it's really like, you know, is, is Adam who like, you've heard all these stories of like coaches being really awful. Like, I don't know if you've heard, remember the Jason Ho stocks poker scandal. Do <laughs> you remember that or no? he was able to get everyone to buy into his coaching because you know you add your credibility being a poker coach on a poker site. And apparently he had a lot of students paying him a lot of money to join him in Macau for like personal coaching. Turns out that he was just uh, awful at the game, but people bought into it. Just like how these entrepreneurs on YouTube, right? They, they show the fancy cards. It does work like this this credibility aspect does work and we, there are probably a lot of coaches that don't know what they're doing. So that's why people are generally wary of, of this. And, and I think again, yeah, that's the only downside I see where maybe people are doing bad in the program and then that casts doubt that spreads doubt through the entire school, the entire staple of like, okay, maybe, maybe we need to find another coach. <laughs> um, but I'm analyzing it not from like how I'm doing standpoint, but like if the strategy that he's recommending actually makes sense to me instead of just like, okay, let's just mimic what he says as a robot and not question uh, the decisions. I mean, that's all very reasonable. And I'd like to ask you about one thing that you sort of touched upon. It, it seems rather natural to me that poker would fall into small communities like this. You described well, there's mm -hmm. the, the guys in the lab, there's the guys with Nick Howard, there's the guys in your program, you know, there's even mine or, or Alvin's or or the, the numerous um, little segmentations because information is valuable. Um, maybe you could comment on, as someone who's kind of been through a lot of these communities, <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what what's the social... Do a little social anthrop uh, anthropology <laughs> for me of... of poker groups man i'm trying to think of the the difference between this and magic or even in magic when you're about to play in a huge tournament you're going to separate into groups to find the best 60 card configuration to bring to the to let's say what is considered a high stakes magic tournament 
I don't know. In, in poker, it is it is just interesting that you just want to. I, I don't know what it is. You, you just want to be find like-minded people you want to feel as, as part of the group and you want to feel like just like how you're analyzing hands it's like hero versus villain um i don't know i just love being in a group just to be able to discuss strategy with someone that is studying the same material than me so being in the program has been super helpful but i don't really see myself i can't relate to the people who communicate and let's say the the discord groups that i'm telling you about like i've i've jumped in just because i'm curious what people talk about and what's out there but i don't really talk to them too much about strategy um mm. because it's just it's just too different and i think um if they don't come from the same place it's kind of it's kind of hard i mean we've seen that there's been like hilarious threads on Wretched Poker, where me and you have chimed in, or the OP has completely no idea what they're talking about <laughs> on a consistent basis. So you're going to have that, and it's like, ah, I don't really want to talk with people there. I, I don't know how much benefit I get from, from people who just don't see things the same way, but I don't know. I just think people just want to, just like in normal social circles, just want to be part of something, um, even if... Um, they might not be um, I, like there's a small YouTube channel that's picking up a, a bit of steam, like called Zenith Poker, and that's one of the Discord groups I'm in. And they've just got a lot of people who are, you know, proud to be playing the ranges that they recommend, and proud to tell, recommend his material to other people. Uh, there's just this, I guess, this human sense of wanting to be part of a team, and like I'm. I'm a proud uh, student of Adams, I feel. So um, maybe that's that. That's all I can say. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, all of you, all of these groups sound like they're winning, frankly. And I don't say there's any reason to doubt that. So when we pick on each other and, you know, get a little <laughs> bitchy, I'm just wondering if it's really a strategy thing or it's just sort of a irrational, you know, social group thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it might be. I mean, um, I think uh, specifically, I always laugh at how, Matt, because although I think Alvin spits too much vile, like tries way too much to be controversial, what I have to give him props for is he is a charismatic guy. And I've seen YouTube videos of him being a stand-up comedy, so I can understand uh like why he attracts so many people and why he's so good at talking. And, um, but I don't know. It just, it just rallies like him specifically. It rallies people together. If he's attacking, even let's say not him, but like in general, when people attack like the high stakes regs or something, because there's like a distance between, I guess the casual Joe, like me to this to Linus Love or all these people but here's Alvin someone that's making videos and willing to talk to me so I'm going to gravitate to him more and then feel this growing attachment and then be more willing to uh quote unquote shit on other content creators out there um and I guess that's that's that sense that we want to feel and maybe it's just like people being different on the internet but just people really want to feel like their strategy is superior just like 
I assume you used to play video games when you were a kid, just like people wanted to be Nintendo to be better than Sega. I think we're seeing the same thing here. Okay. Actually, I didn't play video games when I was a kid. I hated games. <laughs> well, let's move on um, and get into some of the actual stuff that you've done. And because you, you've sent me a hand, I don't know what happens after the flop. And that's great because maybe we can see how you're thinking and how Adam has influenced you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So could you set it up for us? Tell us, you know, all the relevant things, the stacks, where you're playing at, you know, number of players, all that business. Sounds good. I'm playing. I, the reason I, I chose this hand because it, it sparked um, different paths you can take based on the f- different philosophies that you have. So when I'm playing... Um, 25 NL, so that's 10 cent, 25 cent. Uh, Poker Stars, six max. I'm in the small blind with 168 big blinds, which is somewhat relevant because uh, the the person that I'm going to be heads up against is has 154. So so the effective stacks will be 154. So it folds to the cutoff, who raises to 3x, 75 cents, and I decide to three bet to $2.50 with pocket kings. Folds back to him. He calls the three bet in position. And now the flop comes. Well, I have king of hearts, king of diamonds. And the flop comes nine of spades, eight of diamonds, six of diamonds. And uh, this is the type of situation where people are like, well, back in my day, I'd be like, oh, oh crap, I don't want to get, I don't want to be broke with my <laughs> top pair, over pair. That's the first strategic thought any poker player should have. Very good. <laughs> uh, and this is a Zoom, um, in case that oh, matters yeah, yeah, yeah. to anyone. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have access to poker stars. So I can't speak to how the pool is playing, how, you know, what's normal. Is everything here quote unquote standard? The uh, the 3X open, the 5 uh, BB, or rather 10 BB raise. I think the, uh, the the 3x is standard um, based on what I've seen from my database. Like 3x from almost every spot is the most used spot on PokerStar 6max, at least in 25NL. And, and from my, I have a lot of keyboard shortcuts. And um, usually I think this is just me potting it. So there's not a uh, specific reason behind my specific sizing outside of just me clicking, possibly kicking, clicking the pot button. Yeah, I guess I want to start there um, before we go any further. There's, you know, as you probably imagine through your studies, there's some incentive to go large out of position, right? Right, right. And I just wondered if it would be within the purview of the program or how you play to maybe go a little larger here. And I'm thinking uh, of that not just because of position, but because you are you're getting into the the borderlines of depth here. I mean, this is where it begins. You're not really deep, but uh, there's certainly some incentive to start putting more money into the pot in order to get stacks in. Right. So that's this is actually a question that I need to study a lot, Chris, because it's something I've always been curious about. And I think because maybe I'm personally thinking about it wrong. And so I don't. I know out of position, I'm supposed to crank it up more, put more pressure. But at the same time, I feel like if they they call, I'm just like I'm just like less comfortable 
I guess with the out of position with a bigger pot. I don't know if that makes sense or it's just, just like an irrational fear for me that we're playing deeper and I just don't want the pot to escalate too large. No, that's totally reasonable. I mean, every, everything you say, and, and in fact, what I'm going to probably end up saying on the flop will seem to contradict what I just said. I just wonder where that fits into the the Adam Jones program because there is a, a legitimate concern about charging the in-position player. And uh, as, we'll, as we talk about the ranges, you know, you'll have to have an adjusted range for the size that now presents a larger price. Um, so is that something uh, that, that you talk about in the in the coaching groups or is this just the is this the Adam Jones official race size? Uh, this is not I, th- I think adjusted. We do talk about that. Like we do talk about like being able to exploit with like, let's say, opening even larger than than three with better hands. But this specific spot of how out of position versus how I want to control stack to depth uh a stack to pot ratio at this point is not something that uh we have i have personally talked or studied much uh with him yet but that's something that you're you're triggering me to to remind me that that i need to analyze this type of thing more okay so without giving away all the details then um what is the you know the range just give us the percent range that's going to be three betting here and under the program I, i think probably um, I actually wouldn't know off offhand, but like I'm currently uh, three betting. It looks like seven point seven percent, which is regarded uh, in my last coaching session as likely a touch too low. So po- it possibly could be around eight to ten. Yeah, that's that's what I was kind of getting at. Seven percent sounds small. Um, I would certainly look towards you know something north of ten, but. If you decide to go larger, and this is what I was getting at, um, the combinations that you want to put into it uh, shrink a little bit, and perhaps they become more polarized. So there's little nuances in terms of dealing with your problems um, out of position. But let's not get too caught up on that, because I'm sure that the flop is what the the real concern is, right? Right. So the the flop 986 traditionally or, or every book or coach will say like smashes the pre-flop calling range and so so the question is like well better check and there's d- definitely different uh philosophies that can be taken here well let's let's question authority <laughs> and determine <laughs> if that's true or not first i mean we'll just have to ask some basics is this the worst possible flop you could see, for instance? Ooh. No. I don't think so. No. Yeah, what would be a really what would be an even tougher flop? Uh definitely like a um uh I won't I won't I won't put you through the griller. Uh <laughs> what what if we could change one card and make things even worse? I mean if it was uh, like what would be? If it was monotone, it would be worse. If it was, if the six was a seven or a ten, uh, I think it would be worse as well. Yeah. And why is that? I mean, it just strengthens uh, the more likelihood. Like he has more straights, um, and also he's just going to continue a lot more um, on the flop. Right. 
Does does in position actually have any straights on this board? Like, yeah, if if he's a really if he's a loose caller, maybe. But um, if I was in his spot, no. But I don't yeah. have ten sevens. I don't have ten seven suited. So what's the so if we're if we're examining his range on the fly, he would have to have not only opened, but then called a pot size bet. With ten seven suited, which is only four combinations, so I guess what or I'm se- saying is seven five or seven five, right, Chris? Seven five is way more likely than ten seven. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, but the so the availability of very strong hands, it's true. But the nuts isn't in either of your players' range, either player's range actually, and that's something to consider when we move forward. Um, now, in your seven percent range, I don't know how it's mixed. Um, do you have these sets? I, I don't. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's just sort of background. Um, well, you're, you've seen 986. Uh, you turn to your Adam Jones uh, Excel sheet. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> um, I think I might, I might sometimes have, have nines or eights, so I might not be uh, three-betting reliably on that or not. Um, but, you know, some of the the students in, in the program were like, okay, but like, this is a spot where I don't have as many sets and like, I might have some percentage just because I might three bet nines or eight some of the time, but my villain here obviously has all the sets, nines, eights, and sixes. And I think here the, the approach that Adam would recommend would be to, to bet small here. And not, and this isn't part of of. I don't think it's part of the sheet. It's just like this is a exploitative adjustment where you probably have the best hand. You probably don't want, want to bloat the pot too much, and you're exploiting the fact that people are not going to check raise bluff as aggressively as they should, hence justifying. Um, that small bet size where people are going to call you with, let's say like tens, tens through Queens will at least call you here. So, and you want to get value from that. And and by checking, you're giving away, you know, too much value and allow hands like, um, like drawing hands, a cheaper price to, to get to the, to see more cards. So for all of our sophistication in 2020, we're, we're betting to charge the draws and get a little protection. <laughs> okay, so what's the what's the scoop on the why did this hand come up as a as a controversy then? Once if you if you know that the recommendation is to make a small protection bet in order to get a little value and whatnot, uh, why did this one come up in the the Discord or chat group? So on on the flop, like in real time, I actually checked. Um, uh, the the villain bet I think half pot, and I forget what the what the turn card goes, but I check again because I checked the flop and, and he bet I let him take control of the initiative, and then he like makes a huge pot size bet on the turn, and I wish I I showed you what the turn was, but and then I, I ended up folding the hand, so and it became a uh, discussion in in the group because. They felt like some people felt like they would check the flop because of the the nutted range 
Um, some some students take this approach. They they even though we we follow Adam's guidelines for the most part, a lot of us still have things that we've learned from other sources or things that we feel are still correct that we deviate from. And here, some people are like they check because we don't have the nuts. We don't ever have the nuts, and they have like the effective nuts because they have more sets than us and that's why we need to probably tread water more and play more of a check call strategy um so that's why it was like there were disagreements over this this hand sure and they because they brought up that funky word initiative um, because there's a certain value when when the market is going to underperform initiative becomes important because good things happen with initiative and bad things happen without it. So I can imagine a coaching for profits group uh, wanting that. But first of all, you said you don't know what the turn card is. You, you better figure that out real fast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but while you're figuring that out, well, what did Adam say about this? Um, he he bro- broke it down the, the way I just I broke it down after that. He agreed with with my analysis after the fact, which is that no, I, I, King King is probably too strong to just be um, relegated to to a check calling strategy. Um, there's just a lot of scare. Uh, there's not a scary card, but there's a lot of bad cards for us. There's a lot of like those properties that I mentioned, bad cards for us. A lot of worse hands are gonna call because the top card of of the flop is low, low enough. Relatively speaking, like it's a nine, which leaves a lot of um, middle over pairs to be able to call you. And in combination that people aren't just going to check raise you here all that often in a three by pot. I think my database probably shows, uh, if I had to guess, like something like 11%. So, And you mean raise, of course, because you're out of right. position. Right, right, raise, yeah. Okay, well, dig up that that turn card uh what i'm gonna say is that you're not going to do very badly taking either strategy you're going to have checks here and you're going to have bets if you're playing i hate i hate the words optimal i really do (laughs) um i really do hate this discussion and that's why i'm not ever going to have an hour-long vlog cast talking about these things. Um, but but a mixed strategy really is the nuts because we're always trying, um, because at equilibrium, if everyone's playing really well, um, what's the difference in our strategy? Um, there's, there's very little. So we have to find sort of tools that work. And if we become predictable, even if the EVs are very similar, um, our strategy gets very lazy. So having bets and having checks are, are, are kind of natural to the game. Um, if the, if the card had been a seven and not a six, um, indeed King King can be nearly drawing dead without that diamond. Um, so you're going to have a lot more checks. Um, but what I want to point out is that really it's not that you bet or check in these situations that's so important. And it's important to think about this. It's really about the aggregate amount of chips you're putting in in a situation. Um, you'll bet small or you'll check call. 
mm, that's all okay. But if you start betting very large, or if you start pouring money in over streets, when you can be just dead, you realize where win rates really go down. So, you know, if I were in this chat group, I wouldn't get too excited over whether you checked or bet, but I would say, well, the sizing is really going to matter if you bet. Um, you're certainly not, certainly not going to want to be betting large um, because you won't be able to continue. You'll be putting in essentially dead money, and we don't use that word anymore because of just the way poker is gone, but that's actually what the solver, especially if you're node locking, is actually capitalizing on. It's an expression of efficiency. So I like your check, and I think your bet would would have been reasonable too. But a big bet, um, now you're probably talking uh, trouble because this hand will not stock, stack off very well against the hands that want to put in 150 big blinds right on the flop. So what's the turn card? Okay, the, the turn card is the four of hearts. Um, so this this is okay, so... so you. I check on the flop, and he, he actually okay. Going through, he actually pots it. He pots it. Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. He pots it on nine eight six. Uh, what incentive does he have to pot it? Um, if he has, I mean, at this stage, he could easily have an overpair that I'm beating that he just doesn't want overcards to come on. Um, he is trying to maximize value from the hand that I have or type of hands that I can have like aces, kings, queens, and charging them max price when he has a, when he has a set uh, before scarier cards uh, come and kill his action. And um, if, if he has the nuts or if he has, he could also be uh, bluffing with, with some type of uh, strong draw. Mm. And what do you th- what do you think? How do you think King King is going to perform against that combined range? Pretty. Uh, it depends. Like, uh, I'm actually not sure because I think like if he tends to like want to overplay those type of hands, then then maybe not as as bad as I think. But I'm very uncomfortable with with the bet size especially if he's going to apply the similar type of pressure on the later streets yeah i mean you definitely are going to want to be seeing a turn and you're going to be wanting to put in as i've said less aggregate money in order to see that turn Um, he plots it you're going to be calling he only has the sets in seven five and he has multiple draws and over pairs folding on the flop would be pretty insane (laughs) Um, however, is do you think the four is that bad for you or not? Four of hearts. I mean, you know the four of diamonds would be nice for you. What's the four of hearts doing for you, if anything? Uh, nothing really. I think like if you had five seven, it, it was already there. So it doesn't really change much for for me. It's like like basically, I think a brick at this point. Yeah, it looks brickish to me. Um, now you check again, and what happens? I check again, and he pots it again, and and this is where I uh, felt really uncomfortable and, and decided to to fold the hand. Yeah, and this is where your program, you know, is probably really benefiting you. I think there's a lot of incentive to use this board against you and get you to fold a lot. Um, but you are talking about 
exploiting market tendencies. And Adam confirmed that maybe you should fold, right? Um, we didn't talk about this specific line, but I, I feel like he, I feel like if we looked at tendencies, like this huge pot size bet on the turn is, is likely under bluffed. If I had to ask him, I would imagine that's what he would say. Yeah. And that's, and that's, what's, what's interesting about these programs and, and how these, these great coaches know the market so well, because it really doesn't look like a fold to me. <laughs> um, the, the, the four is, is, is a, is an essential blank. He never like pots four. I mean, very rarely would he pot fours, even if he has them. Um, I mean, maybe there's some incentive. I mean, he has the incentive to do it, but it's only two outs and it's just not a card that really changes anything because seven five was already there. Um, if you give up, if you give up on nine, eight, six, when he has, you know, tens, jacks, queens, uh, some nines, sevens are a hand that I have a real big incentive to uh, put pressure on you considering that you can fold hands like this. You just have to have some call down hands, um, especially when you don't have sixes or when you're not going to take this line, say, with eights or nines. Um, so it's just in it's interesting to me. And there's it's as we as we've discussed, there's really no real clear answer. Um, but boy, uh, I would have paid this guy off, I think. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for for Adam. He might just think I'm crazy for folding a turn either. And I, I think, and, and you're talking to me into it being a call now on the turn. And then I guess I might have to, uh, yeah, then, then the river becomes tough for me, <laughs> but you're, you're talking. Well, it's me it's into interesting it. because there's, uh, well, don't be, don't be talked into anything. Um, <laughs> the incentive to, to, to be polar in position is, is strong in poker and it's, he gets to once you check and the board, you know, mostly favors him. Your equities are probably really even on this flop, uh, but you're out of position and you're putting in less aggregate chips, which is good. Um, but he has an incentive to just take the hand away from you with a number of holdings. And yes, including some that are are better, uh, better hands than you have. Um, but folding your over pairs uh, when he has that incentive and when he's entering the polarized construction where he is allowed to have more bluffs means this has to be a call down at least some of the time. And what that magic number is, you know, we'd have to do some real research and not just on the fly of a conversation. Um, <laughs> but but you'll have to see um, no matter how, no matter what the market information is telling you, you will be getting bluffed here at least you know, at least a portion of the time because it's just so natural to the game once you check um, and and see a board like this. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have, if I'm in his spot, I'm I'm bluffing quite a bit too. So cool. I definitely am doing it so, with Jack-10 at least or a bunch of flush draws. Yeah, I mean, we can even talk about some of those hands. Queen-Jack is a really nice hand to have here with... Uh, two overcards, a gutter. Um, it's too weak to do anything uh, but bluff with. We can't be, uh, I mean, it makes a good raise if you had bet. It blocks some of your combinations and it can pick up 
equity, except against the, the exact top, which is kings or aces. Um, but in a sense, you know, those don't matter. They don't comprise the biggest part of your range and, and getting, and that's why the, what makes them big money makers in poker. We're fighting, we're fighting often against everything that isn't aces and kings. Everything is sort of a substitute for those uh, two high equity hands. And I'd, I'd hate to see you give up on um, the expected value of your session with uh, very strong hands. But all right, we've we've gone through it. Um, and I think it's interesting that you get the, the support and you get to argue with, with players in the group. I think that's really essential. I think that's a good thing in poker. Um, it's too bad that we, we pick on each other so much, but I think uh, <laughs> considering I do it a lot myself, I'd be a hypocrite to say it's... Uh, well, I'm just not going to say no more. I mean, it's hard to find a bigger asshole than myself in some situations. Gotta, I got to watch myself. I, I haven't seen it. I have not seen it. You always, in all the threads where you're an asshole, you have, you're just super sarcastic. And that's, that's it. Well, you know, I try to be, I, you know, I, I, I try to have a point. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely sympathize with Alvin on that um, and other players who do have strong opinions. Um, if you have an opinion, why not share it in an entertaining way? Um, I don't know. What do I, what do I know about anything? What do we know about anything? Uh, since I know nothing about anything, uh, any questions for me before we wrap up? Oh, yeah. It's just so it, it sounds like through this conversation and I haven't basically picked your brain since according to Twitter four years ago. And every now and then I'd pick you and you were kindly enough to answer questions that um, I think you, you, you know, were charging at one point coaching for. But do wonder what you think about uh, this GTO simplified approach that people are taking, um, because it just seems like that approach, I mean, by definition, has to leak EV. And if, oh, yeah, my, my message was, are they simplifying it, thinking it's more simplifying than they think it really is? Because, sure, it makes the flop easier to play. Because you're like, okay, got a C-bet range here, a third. And I think, but Alvin also in one video I watched quickly was he, instead of just C-bet range, he'll have a different type of heuristic, uh, a different set of rules of how to C-bet. Like, okay, C-bet all hands that are either this, this, or that, like has a flush or has an open, whatever. I forget the exact parameters, but do that, that with this size and makes the flop play easier but is that like is that approach actually uh, good in your mind doesn't that make could potentially make your turn play tougher because uh, you're bringing your entire range there and if you don't have like for me the reason why i felt like splitting ranges might not be that hard is because check there's some hands that i that are just complete tracks that i'm check folding and that removes a lot of hands that i have on certain flops from even thinking about what i need to do with them um yeah, your your thoughts on mm, that's, well, that's, <laughs> that that is one hell of a question. Um, well, let me knock out the easy easy parts of that, and then we'll get to the tougher parts. Um, no coach is going to tell you to bring uh, your entire range at a price that that range can't sustain. Um, and someone like Alvin or any GTO coach, when he when he has a range bet, yes, obviously there's you're able to bet you know, 90% plus 
not usually 100. And the simplification is 200, remember? Right. We were, we're able to bet a large amount of hands. But on the turn, when we're incentivized to be more polar and to put money into the pot because we put less money in on the flop, I mean, these things have to be accounted for, the betting frequency goes down quite a bit. Um, you don't expose your stack and go nuts on the turn just because you you carried all these hands um, with a, an efficient bet on the flop. So, um, you know, unless you were misspeaking, that that would be a, a, a confusion. Uh, and that wouldn't be true. No one's going to tell you to end up with an extremely unbalanced range. And, and in fact, that would be specifically disregarding what what theory and the solver would tell you. Uh, I thought I was trying to say, does it make it not that it was imbalanced, that would it make it from a difficulty to play standpoint? I felt like the argument to simplify is that you just have one action on the flop and you don't really have to think at all about what to do. Like, what do I do with a specific hand? No, I'm just going to bet one third pot. And then on the turn, you'll have the same amount of hands. And now you have to know what to do with those hands on the turn. Well, yeah. I mean, look, the, the EV in, of your poker career mm -hmm. will mostly be determined by very large pots you're going to have to know what to do on turns and rivers. And the, if there's a big leak of, of, of poker players out there, if the micro stakes could be quantified, um, from my view, it's not that they're like folding too much or whatever. I mean, I would say the biggest leak is even more simple. is that they don't know what to do on turns and rivers. And that's what causes their problems. So you're going, if you're going to take a strategy, you, you have to study it all the way to the end. Mm -hmm, right and so yeah of course you're gonna you're gonna need to know that once you you offer a good price you know your your continuation on the on the turn is going to be very specific hands it's going to generally be blocking the value of your opponents it's going to encourage draws and you're going to only bet that range and if and if you get out of construction well the value of your range bet really diminishes i would say you're just doing i mean at that point you're just like everyone else in the field who's copying everyone else so so if you want to separate yourself and and you know reach your goals studying the turn and river i would say is is where it's at okay that that makes sense that makes a lot of sense to me i, I yeah my i guess my my thing the question I'm, I'm not stating anything my question was like does simplifying the flop actually make it you know, your life easier. And I'm not sure if that's true, if the turn and river, like you said, are more important and going to be more uh, complex to navigate if you have a lot of your, basically in some scenarios, a lot of your range there. And so then you will have to know how to play that, that entire range. Whereas like, because the argument of, of, I feel that some of these players have, or at least I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but like the, the, the incentive to simplify on the flop is to make it easier to play so that you don't have a checking, uh, what, what Nick Howard say, like you cut down part of the tree at the top because trees exponentially grow, like he would say. Um, so that's his incentive <laughs> for cutting part of the decision tree. But I'm arguing that it might not be easier because then the, then the turn you have to play so uh, precisely if, if, you know, I agree with you that turn and river play is more important. Well, there's something 
there's something in what you're saying, um, but there's always more. There's always more to it. You right. know, if you're playing eight tables, I mean, you will want the most simplified strategy possible. Mm-hmm. If you're playing one table or two tables, like I'm going to be doing, I don't want to be simple. Um, that's against. I'm incentivized to take whatever I think is the very best line, and that isn't going to be necessarily uh, betting at the merged price. And I use you know many different sizings when I play online, um, including flop over bets, and they, it's really effective. But if I were doing what you're doing, I, how would I ever do that? I mean, I would go insane. <laughs> So um, there's a bigger there's a bigger picture, and if it has to suit your whole, ideally it suits your whole the whole structure of of your poker <clears throat> endeavor. Um, so a, a, a mass uh, a massive amount of tables probably demands a simplified strategy, and I would never question an online pro telling me that that would be a good idea. I mean that, that seems rather natural. Mm. Okay, just wa- just wanted your your thoughts on basic like GTO simplification just fascinates me so. Well, the, the the thing about these good coaches when they're doing good simplifications is they're running, you know, they're checking the EV and the loss, the lo- EV loss. We're always really funny. We're measuring now. Not We used to say, well, we were looking for plus EV lines, right? Now we're looking to lose less. <laughs> against. I mean, it's just a small irony, but that's that's what we're doing. We're trying to lose less. And a lot of these strategies do lose, like, so little EV that it's... It, you might as well do what they say uh, in terms of the simplification. But the real value of a good coach is probably, especially one who you're going to be like, you know, copying to some degree, will be the heuristics on the turn and the river where, well, what cards and what sizings are we using automatically? What, who, who can we identify who has what advantage and what should I, how should I be responding? And I do this a certain way. And other coaches do it a certain way. And, and you, if you find that those are appealing and working for you, I mean, I, w- I would say that's probably the gold of, of getting uh, help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we've rattled on for quite a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, we have. I really want to thank you, Carr, for coming on and talking about coaching for profits, a little bit about magic and this this hand, which is like such a such a common spot that everyone every poker player has to deal with it, and there's multiple ways of taking it on. Uh, sounds like you chose a fairly reasonable one. Um, there are no easy answers, um, and there's no easy way to uh, make money in poker. There, does that sound sort of summary and silly? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, signing off. Thank you very much, and uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening and for telling your friends about the show. There are a million podcasts that you can choose to listen to and a plethora of them in just the poker space. So we are glad that you chose to listen to ours also. Uh, You can find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a search for the poker zoo. Email persuadio at gmail.com or thepokerzoo at gmail.com with any comments, questions, hand histories, culinary advice, uh, recipes, anything that you would like to talk about. My wife did most of the cooking this week. Uh, The favorite recipe would be the Korean short ribs with pickled onions, carrots, uh, some pickled cucumbers, kimchi, of course, and several other toppings that I can't remember off the top of my head. 
We had it on rice for the original meal, and then several days later, I took a ch- piece of ciabatta bread and cut it in half, hollowed out part of it, toasted it with um, some olive oil and some uh, seasoning, layered the meat along with all the toppings, nice even layer across the entire bread, put the top on, sliced it into several sections, and it was magically delicious that way also. So that is our show for this week. We'll see you next time. Here's the boy.